Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 237. And today, I am joined by First Light's Director of Conservation and Public Relations, Ryan Callahan. And we're talking about the elk hunt we just went on in Montana over the past week and all the adventures that went along with it. Alright, real quick before we get to that though, just want to give a big shout out to our friends over at Lacrosse Footwear for their support of this podcast. And if you're not already using Lacrosse products, they are definitely worth checking out. If you are a whitetail hunter and you need some new boots, the rubber boots that Lacrosse are putting out there are the best I've tried, at least up to this point. They've been working great for me for almost two decades now. You can get them in many different camo patterns. You can get them in many different levels of insulation. They are about as scent-free as you can get a boot because of their rubber construction. They are as waterproof as you can ask for because of that same rubber construction, and they're really comfortable. They've been able to find a great way with a lot of their boot models to mold it well to your foot. Makes it easy to hike around in these things, but still have the proper strength that you need to, you know, walk on tough ground, to be in muck, to be in snow, whatever it might be. They just seem to cover just about everywhere I've taken them. As I've mentioned, I've used the Lacrosse Arrowheads and the Alpha Burley Pros. Have been happy with both. So if you are in need of checking out some new boots, you can learn more at lacrossefootwear.com. And now to the show. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And I'm sitting in Montana in a truck on a mountain next to Ryan Callahan. Ryan, we had a snowy cold morning, huh? Yeah, man. First, like, very cold morning. Um, How cold do you think it actually was? Uh, Mid-20s? 20s? Somewhere in the 20s. Yeah, if not, maybybe even lower, because it's midday now, and we're down where there is no snow, and it's 36. Yeah. It was frosty, chilly. Felt good. Yeah, it did. Impressive cold. Yeah. Felt like something could happen. It did. Um we're out here in Montana and we've been elk hunting and Ryan I was hoping to kind of run through the story since I've been out here what 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 I did before I met up with you and then what we did together and then um I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit about your elk hunts ahead of this you were telling me some stories about your early season action I wouldn't mind hearing about some of that again but also want to make sure we touch on a few things about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Is that something you're up for chatting about too? Yeah, absolutely. Good timing All on right. that. Yes, sure. this is so. primo timing. So I guess though we should talk elk first. This is the first time I've hunted elk in two years. Well, I took I started hunting elk in 2013 and then went every year for four years or five years after that and then took last year off because I did that caribou hunt. So this is good to get back out in the elk woods. I was missing it. Um, but it was kind of a short trip. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, good, good thing to, uh, remember is this is like longer than a lot of folks average 
elk trip, you know? Really? Yeah. I mean, I know so many people that are, you know, they're lucky if they get out for a weekend. You're saying locals. Yeah, local folks, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. I guess you're right. I feel, we, we were talking how I feel like so many of my, well, all of my elk hunts, it's always this great big production, right? It's this big trip, all this planning goes into it. It's this long time period that you look forward to all year. It's got to be so different for you or anyone who lives around this stuff where it's like, I'll go out for a night or I'll go out for Saturday afternoon. And yes. Yeah, yeah, ripping out after work as fast as you can and uh, at least getting to the spot that you want to hunt. Yeah. You know, and then give it a good solid morning. And if it doesn't seem like it's going to turn on, you know, maybe you bail that whole weekend and go get your all your chores done and uh, all the, your responsibilities taken <laughs> care of and, and you kind of keep tabs on it and hope to get out when things are really happening. Um, you know, that that was something that was very familiar to me not all that long ago. So. Well, I feel like I feel like being a out-of-stater, when you hear about folks talking about how you can find public land elk these days, it, all, it always sounds like you got to get 10 miles off the road, and you have to be way back in the middle of nowhere. So I've always kind of had this assumption. I feel like a lot of other people that haven't, hunt, haven't elk hunted very much that live out on the other side of the country have the same assumption that you need to come out here for some expedition and you need to be back there 15 miles. But when I was heading out here, you know, I chatted with you, you know, you pointed me towards a spot that I should check out to start. And you're like, oh, yeah, just drive down this road. People just drive around Bugle and then go chase them right off the road. Yeah. And that's something I kind yeah. of wouldn't have even thought was possible. Yes. Well, you know, it's, it's all, I always talk about, like, having a lot of different tools in your toolkit, right? Mm-hmm. So every area is different. And, you know, this is um, where we're sitting right now is a lot of, like, standing lodgepole pine country. It's really thick timber um and that you know the animals use the roads a lot um and um yeah so i mean that's that can be an effective tool um to locate and maybe figure a spot out and then then you know get the backpack on and 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 go in there um like we were talking about i had a, a friend of mine who never i never saw him once wear a backpack he'd stuff a bottle of water in his you know military surplus uh cargo pants and that was his whole whole kit you know and all he did was you know he operated solely within a mile of the road yeah i guess it comes down to what you were talking about the other day just the value of mobility yes I mean, you kind of, it's, it's interesting. This is the same thing with white-tailed deer hunting. Very often, it's so easy to, you pick the spot you're going to hunt, and once you pick, once you make that decision, once you kind of prepare for that, if you just are stuck in that rut and you're not willing or able to adapt, you're going to very often be stuck in a bad place. So, like, when we backpack in for these elk hunts I've done in the past, we've kind of been stuck. We could have pulled up, but we, we never did because of all the work it took to get in there. Yeah. So you're kind of in this one drainage, and if it's not happening there... You're kind of SOL. Yes. But it seems like this this other way of going about it that you're talking about in certain situations, it seems to make a lot of sense. Check out a lot of different areas till you find where they're at. Yep. I mean, yep. What, how do you, can you walk me through kind of what that would look like? Like how many different places or how far back off a of main road? Or I mean, what's like the details of how you go about that kind of mobile elk hunt, the way you'd approach it? Yeah, well, you know, there's um, a couple of different techniques, I guess. Um, 
but you know you know obviously it, it works better when you're in some bigger chunks of national forest where um you don't i guess don't get stuck on trailheads um an official designated trailhead isn't your only means of accessing the elk woods right um and you know hit stop primarily when i'm checking out new areas um you know in the evening primarily um that last hour um and into the dark too i'll stop bugle off the road listen move on stop bugle off the road listen move on um and it's it's about locating it's not about hunting right so you you locate you look at the map and you're like okay i think that bugle came from about here but it's now it's nine o'clock at night i'm willing to bet that that animal moved off of this ridge and it might be heading this direction so maybe in the morning i'll figure out how to be on that ridge somehow um and then, you know, the backpacking version of that is, um, you know, I'll try to be, I'm never like an ultralight person, but I try to just pare things down as small as possible. So, uh, no stove, no tent. Um, you know, uh, if the weather's pretty inclement and I'm by myself, a tarp is about all the shelter I'll bring. Um, and, I'm just kind of cruising and calling, cruising and calling, cruising and calling. Um, when I do locate elk, I have the ability to stay on them until I can kill one, right? Because you're keeping your camp on your back. Because camp is time. on my back the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was that was something we did this time, too, that was different than what I've done in the past. I want to talk about that, too. But, um but I guess basically, if we rewind the tape a little bit, what you talked about in the beginning is kind of how I started out because you couldn't meet me for a day. So I came out yeah. and just thought, all right, I'm going to try to find something and make a move on something quick. So I drove around a bunch of these national forest roads and stopped, bugled, drove around, stopped, bugled, drove and checked trailheads, tried to see where there were other trucks and stuff to try to figure out where are other people. Yep. I figured that was a good starting point, avoid where there's a bunch of other people. So to your point, the one main trailhead that we were near there was three trucks and another truck and a horse trailer. So everyone kind of congregates around that, right? Um, eventually found what I thought was decent-looking elk country that you had to go up this big steep ridge to get to, but it was kind of dark timber and some scattered meadows along these ridges. So that first, I think it was that, that first evening, I just got in there and I thought, all right, if I can get up there high, maybe I can see something, maybe I can hear something in these drainages way back there, at least have a starting point, you know? Um, so I hiked up the top of that ridge, got way up there, could see into almost three different drainages, did little locator bugles along the way every once in a while, didn't hear anything, sat on that ridge, glassed a lot of country, didn't see anything, um, but it looked like good enough country that it might be worth checking out that general area again, so the next morning I got up early, and I talked to a guy the night before, another hunter was in the area. And he'd mentioned that they'd been there for days. I can't remember how many days, but a handful of days. And they hadn't heard a single bugle. 
and I hadn't heard a single bugle. So I kind of had this assumption now that maybe like the locating tactic might not work as well for me, like bugling from the road or bugling all over the place. So I thought, okay, I just need to put some miles back in there and try to see this tucked in drainage that I've been looking at the map. So I came in from a, a different access point, but heading towards the same different or same general direction that I was at that first day. Hiked back in there, calling every once in a while, but didn't hear anything. I came over this ridge, this back ridge, towards this final drainage I was heading into, about three miles off the road. And I was walking on the side hill of the ridge, right where the timber met this little meadow, so right along that edge. And I come around the corner, and I see an elk standing out there maybe 150 yards away. I just freeze. And I'm trying to say, is he staring at me? Is this, is this elk staring at me? And you can see his head turning, facing the other way. So I dropped down to my knees, pulled up the binos, and can see it was, it was like a decent bull. Um, I think it was a 5x5. Five five. And um, that was encouraging to see a bull. Yes. But as I've got my binos up looking, I notice there's a cow standing behind him, and she's looking right at me. So I think that I had only seen him, and I dropped down because I thought he wasn't looking at me, so I thought I was safe, but I bet you she was behind him. I couldn't see her. She saw me kneel down. So she's staring at me. The bull's got his head down now feeding, and then she barks, and then a calf jumps up behind her, and the calf runs down the hill, and then she runs down the hill, and then eventually he followed. And that was exciting to see a bull. And at that point I thought, mm-hmm. well, maybe, you know, he didn't, he didn't run. He like fed for another like, 20 seconds and then turned and just kind of walked down our flower. So I sprinted down the mountain in the timber. I'm like, well, maybe I can like get close enough into their world and they hear some crash in and then try a couple yeah. cow calls and maybe he would be like, Oh, another cow. Um, so I did that, but I never caught up with them and never could hear them and never responded to my calls. And that was kind of that. I kept hiking, exploring this new area, but, I have, yeah, many times I've been uh, like, well, it's game over. And somebody wants to try this very low percentage success last-ditch effort, and I've seen it pay off, you know. And I'm like, no possible way this is going to work. Yeah. So it is worth trying, man. So, so what, the sprint sprint into the woods. Yeah. You know? would, you have, would you have done that, or would you have said, eh, she barked, they're out of here, bail, or what would you have done in that scenario? Would, yeah, for me, I would have, I would have just chilled and been like all right i'm gonna give these guys some time or i'm gonna go find other elk yeah yeah okay yeah because i mean a big part for me too is you know i'm pretty spoiled i get a lot of days in the elk woods and and i like my situations as much as i like my elk right so i'm like i want that bull vocal and i want him trying to step on top of me right um and so i'll mess around with them until i can get that to happen typically man you are spoiled yes so yep. then I went up and met up with you, and we headed off to a new area. Yes. And we were, again, looking for that type of snare you like. Yes. And um, so, yeah, this is kind of like um, a zone that, you know, very confident there's elk in there. We pulled a couple of bulls out in the past. Um, but it was still, you know, kind of that road hunting scenario, right, where it's camps on the back. We're doing um, quite a bit of calling. Um, you know, my theory um, is that these elk are always talking. Sometimes you just got to be right on top of them. And, you know, I'm not ripping, like, giant, huge bugles. It's more uh, conversational, like, um, confidence-inducing bugles, I would think. 
So, so what does that actually, I mean, obviously you can't make the sound, but just like a high squealy short bugle kind of thing, or how would you describe your locator? Short and not like piercing. And then it didn't seem like you did, you didn't do like any junk afterwards. Not a lot of grunts or glunks or chuckles or anything. No, no. At least. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just trying to, um, it's more like, you know, this time of year, uh, the ruts on elk are moving all over the place. Elk are getting beat up and pushed into different herds, different drainages, people pressure, pushing elk around. And, you know, for me, it's paid off to just have that more like everything's great with the world type of bugle. Not, I'm intimidating you. I'm trying to find somebody else type of bugle. Yeah. I'm looking for a fight. I'm looking for ladies. It's more just like our little group's doing just fine. Yeah, I feel like, I, and I was telling you this, that I we I maybe was missing um, the boat on this a little bit because we got so call shy where we hunt in Idaho because we, we just assumed that any bugling was sending these elk the other direction. So we, we stopped bugling altogether. We did zero calling except for if we heard a bugle and we got closer to that bull then we try a little bit of cow calling and that was all we did because we were so worried about the pressure yeah but from what it sounds like we maybe we could have got away with more yeah it, it's it's really hard it's really hard to get in this mental space of um playing people more than elk mm-hmm. and and yes sometimes that is the right call but more often than not um when I got to remind myself, like, uh, there's some absolute dumbass luck involved, but I've very consistently been an elk killer, and you just need to go hunt and kill elk and not worry about the next dude in the drainage. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure there's some folks that would argue with that, uh, again, there's situations where you absolutely do, do need to play the people. Like they've been sitting on elk that have been coming out of the same bedding zone and they just sit there and on the same ridge top and rip bugles and rip bugles and rip bugles. Um, those elk have probably figured out not to, not to even recognize those things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but you know, it's an odd thing. Like I was staring at a, you know, a very large herd bull in idaho um a couple weeks ago and you know i'm 250 yards from them i have cows behind me and in front of me it should have been like a pretty darned good situation to get this guy pissed and i did like three huge bugles you know 250 yards but Everybody was on their feet. Um, my mind should have been close enough, and uh, he didn't respond or even look at me till the third bugle. Huh. What? And then what did he do? Then he scooped up his cows and got out of there. Mm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, so I, th- I think that particular bull is was just in the mindset of, like, you know what, the rut's not really happening. He wasn't, I'd been watching him for a while. He wasn't picking up cows actively. They were basically coming to him. And 
I think really his strategy, and, and this is something I very much believe in, is there's a lot of bulls out there that they know bugling attracts attention from a, you know, a variety of predators, of course, but also just those other bulls. And they're like, well, why would these ladies are coming to me? Right. Why would I tell everybody about it and make my job harder? Do you, do you, so that's like, that's the most difficult scenario then for Hunter, right? Yes. When you've got a bull like that or all the bulls like that. Yes. Which sometimes it seems like recently here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that has been, that's what we're at in my past elk hunting trips. That's where we've struggled the most. Or maybe I should say the other way. The only time we found any success is when they're talking a lot. Otherwise, we struggle. Yeah. Um, and what we've done in the past when that has happened is we just walked around and glassed, walked around and glassed and called a little bit, you know, like I mentioned, a little bit of cow calling. But um, it seemed like that's kind of what you do, too, based yeah. on what we did. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, sorry to go back. Like, the new spot that we went into uh, after we met up um, – you know, we we worked um, a variety of, like, high and low ridges, um, and we were basically... I got to say, I got I to gotta jump in and say that um, I have always elk hunted with, like, other friends from Michigan and in, in Iowa. So when I go on these trips with my buddies locally, and I told you this yesterday, but I'm like the mountain goat in my friend group. So I was like, geez, Mark's got these long legs. He's always hiking so far. He never stops for breaks, blah, blah, blah. But now I'm hiking with, with you, Ryan, and you're going up this first ridge. And it's, I don't know how high we went up, how long it was. I don't know, a handful of miles, a decent chunk of elevation gain. And not a single stop for a breather the whole time. I'm just thinking, man, I like it when I'm the one who gets to <laughs> be leading the way and not yes. feeling like I was dragging ass. Oh, you did great, um, man. That uh, That's not a fun ridge either. I was like, man, this is a long ridge. Yeah. <laughs> Usually I'm I'm waiting for people behind me. Now I realize I don't want to be the one that someone's waiting for. Like oh, in my head, I'm like, do not stop. Do not make Ryan wait for you. <laughs> oh no, yeah. You know, unfortunately, like I, I've definitely like clicked into this mindset where it's like no matter, just disconnect your feet from your body, let them do the work, mm-hmm. and the only thing that's going to make this long steep ridge more painful is stopping because it's never going to get over yeah and that's kind of i click into that mode when i'm packing meat out too it's like just keep the wheels turning at all costs it is such a mental game you have to like you said you have to disconnect your mind from your legs and just like go into some other space and just like be on autopilot almost yes exactly because if you get if you get in your head and you're like oh this is miserable i'm so tired then you then you're just going downhill fast yeah happens absolutely so we kept cruising and really, we're like, okay, I know there's elk in here. Um, there's always elk in here. Um, but everything that we've been hearing um, from friends that we bump into and stuff have been like, there is no talking going on. So despite the no talking that we were experiencing firsthand, we were cruising and looking for sign because, um, you know, we get a lot of success. Um you know, killing bulls that come in silent. And, and, but, you know, I'm not going to like stop and set myself up for that success unless I can find fresh sign. 
Yeah, can you can you walk through what that specific fresh sign was that you were looking for? Because I was really interested to understand like what was going through your head as we were hiking around all the time. Like what what was enough sign or fresh enough sign to make you say, okay, yeah, this is an area we need to focus on. More than just like a single bull track coming out of the timber. Like ideally, there's some back and forth and multiple animals um, that all looks relatively fresh you know unfortunately what we were finding is uh what i would refer to as historic elk sign not current elk sign Mm -hmm. and what do you think a few weeks old yeah 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 and but a lot of it a lot of it um which yeah man it was just like um you know that was the spot the boys and a handful of cows were hanging out in and then once the season started getting going I think those cows probably pitched off into a different drainage and the bulls may have lingered a couple of days and then followed, you know. Um, But um, so, you know, it's nice having like the fresh rubs around, but those bulls can travel so much during the rut that I don't put like a, I don't get super jacked when I see that. Is there anything like with whitetails, something we see a lot is you're going to see, um, increased rub activity closer and closer to their bedding areas. When you find yeah. like a buck bedding area, you're like just littered with rubs, you're like, Oh, we're in it. Yes. Do you see anything like that? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, like a little people pressure, predator pressure, because it is so close to the bedding area, like that can be red hot the day before and you just missed it. Yeah. Um, or they, you know, they picked up, uh, you know, a cow went into estrus in the next frickin' county, and <laughs> it seems like they're gone. So what I want to see is ideally uh, scat that I can just be, you know, no question, that just happened. Yeah. Um, like a real elk smell uh, before it's like crazy ammonia elk. Um, and some back-and-forth tracks would be like the – the holy trinity right um that are also like fresh um and you know a lot of like this super dry country that i hunt you know it's it's pretty darned easy to see what a fresh elk track is yeah so if we had been hiking along on our first day and we ran across that so up until this point we've been hiking glassing bugling hiking glassing bugling from ridge to ridge, checking all these things out. But now let's say we got to a spot, you found this holy trinity to sign. What would we have done differently at that point? Well, at that point... Because that never really happened. No, it never happened. Um, You know, most of the time you can, unless you're in, like, again, like some of this lodgepole stuff where it doesn't really seem to look like there is, um, like, a defined bedding area or a defined, like, well, yeah, of course they're going to be on this bench or working through this saddle. Um, unless you're in a spot like that, you know, I am looking for those obvious, like, okay, to me, looking at this hillside, like, they have to be in that draw. So here's the sign. This is where they're coming out onto, like, the exposed ridge at night to feed and, and mess around and, and get into that rutting activity. Um this is kind of like the area that they're using. Um, most of the time for me, because I, 
I, I like to throw caution to the wind is I would uh, slip in there on that same trail, get as close as possible to the bedding zone. Um, and, you know, and, and, and that's about the most, that's the time that I am the most quiet in the elk woods is when I'm like, okay, I know they're bedding right here. I was just 200 yards away ripping a bugle and nobody responded. So now I'm going to be like pretty darn quiet. From a calling standpoint, you're saying? And from a walking standpoint. Yeah. Like, um, Sneak mode. Yep. Yep. Um, but not like my boots off or anything, but just being a little more, I'm not going to go crashing through brush. I'm slipping around it. Um, and then, uh, you know, and paying attention to the wind the whole time. And then I'll set up, um, you know, I'll have my the bottom of my bow limb in my front pocket. So it's vertical and I can rest it when rest my arm and sit there and call. And, um, do you try to get close enough that you're actually seeing like a bedded cow or something? Sometimes. Sometimes. Or is that too close most of the time? Most of the time you don't need to be that close. So you're just in the timber, you're in the dark stuff. You, f- you got to feel that there's somewhere on this ridge you're 100 yeah. yards. What's yeah, the, what's... I, I mean, you're definitely within 100 yards. Yeah. yeah. So then yeah. you're set up and do a little calling. Yep. And it's a little calling. So one call. And this is a cow call? Cow call. Like wait a little bit, a couple of cow calls, and then I'll wait for half an hour. And then I'll make another cow call, couple of cow calls. Um, and, you know, it's definitely time dependent during the day when I found these things, right? Because you don't want that wind to switch on you. But then I'll do like a really, like very, very chill don't mind me type of bugle that says I'm a, I'm a little bull. I'm in here with these cows and I do not want to screw up this situation. (laughs) And a lot of times that's when I'll get like a grunt or a chuckle out of that timber. And that's the bigger bull likely that says, what's this punk doing in here? Yeah. It's like, I like the cows. And then I'll just go back to cow calling. And again, like very sporadic. And I get a lot of success with that bull standing up in the middle of the day and coming to check that stuff out. Hmm. Not a lot of people do that kind of bedding area sneak, do they? I feel like that's... It's high consequence. Right. Right, because you blow up the bedding area just like with whitetails. Yep. It's like, well, you just screwed up their safety zone. And so a lot of people would say, well, why don't you just stay on the ridge where you know they're coming out to feed? Um, And, you know, the answer sometimes is, well, I know this is a pressured area, and that's where the people thing comes in. And it's like, if I don't get them today, um, you know, this bedding area doesn't really look like a bedding area. It looks like a place that you can just walk through and no problem. And and somebody might do that in the next five minutes. Right. or, um, you know, they've been really quiet and this is my weekend to hunt, you know, cause I got to go do something else. Um, you know, there's plenty of outside factors, right? It's like, this is my last weekend. Got to yeah. make it happen. Yeah. Um, but the biggest factor for me is like, that's, 
like those situations, I just have a lot of success. And you were saying too that uh, you like the shorter shot opportunities too, versus like big wide meadow type things where lots of yep. times you're you're stuck with oh, do I want to take that sixty yard shot or seventy yard whatever yep. fifty yards? Um, you're kind of forcing yourself to a much higher percentage shot, right? Yeah, and you know that bull has to come find you in the timber, right? And they're comfortable in the timber, and then but you know you you just called your butt off and you did a great job and that bull breaks through the tree line into a meadow at a hundred yards. A lot of times he's going to take five or six steps and lock up and be like, okay, I should see something. Yeah. Where, where, where is he? Yeah. So yeah. And I mean, most, most of the time when I'm, um, uh, if I'm calling for somebody else, I can work things a lot differently, but you know, most of the time when I'm out there for the freezer, I'm just by myself. So, yeah. yeah. So we're doing, we're doing the thing you mentioned before we find hot sign. We're still hiking, glassing, bugling, hiking, glassing, bugling. And something that should be pointed out about this area is that it's just blowdowns everywhere. Yeah. It's so miserable. it's, and, and I think to your point, you talked about how this is one of the reasons why this was a, a, a better spot was because that was a deterrent to people, right? Most hikers didn't want to go in through that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's not a pretty place. It's not a welcoming place. Um, and it, it can be kind of a sanctuary um, uh, as other places get pressured, right? And now we're kind of later in the season, felt like the time was right to go in there, um, and pretty shocked that we weren't weren't really finding anything. So, like, the, you know, the most sign that we found would be, like, a single bull um had like cruised through the area yeah like probably within three days um and then um but i mean still like when things aren't talking and you have the confidence that there are elk there you you don't have a lot of choice other than to totally leave and find a different area like we talked about before and find where they are talking or to like really hunt the thing well and and hit those pockets that you know where they like to hide and and hang out. And so that's what we we kind of did. And Hope that something comes in quiet, right? And, yeah. And just make sure you're really ready for it and at all sure times. And make sure that you're ready for it at all times. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we're, we're doing this, and we get to this back kind of ridge, a little bowl, I guess, before this last major ridge, sort of, I'm remembering this, right? We're kind of... We walked up to this little outcrop of rocks. Ryan lights off a bugle. Um, I don't know, maybe a cow call or two, something like that. And we listened and nothing, as it had been for the last two days. Yeah. And so then we sat down and just kind of started BSing a little bit, right? Yeah. And I had my back against this rock because I didn't really want to sit all the way down. Um, Because, you know, it was kind of getting into magic time. It's getting later in the day, so I was like, boy, if they're not here, well, we got to charge over this next ridge. Mm-hmm. And, and um, Mark, you're looking the opposite direction, and you're like, hey, right there. And I, you know, that was definitely something I'd been wanting to hear. Right. <laughs> but I was looking, I was basically standing up, leaning against this big rock, looking the opposite direction. And I was like, oh, boy, what are they doing? Yeah, and I was sitting on, I was sitting on a rock like 10 yards away with my bow in my lap, facing that direction and i just remember hearing like rocks clattering and so and you were like you were in the middle of saying something because i remember like hey, hey, hey like 
pointing at you like right 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 and then hearing this like that's definitely the sound of elk and then yeah when i turn to that noise there's this elk coming right at us and it was a bull but i just remember thinking oh there's no way that this is going to work out because he's he must he must see us or something but we just stayed frozen man yeah and talk about should have worked out so yeah i kind of craned my neck around and i see the bull's head's all covered up um but i'm looking at the body and i'm like oh it's not a huge bull and then uh his buddies start coming over the ridge and i'm like oh man this is like a home run this is like i'm immediately i'm like oh put okay elk goes down here we're gonna have to camp in here <laughs> and we're gonna drop down this ridge like and, confidence. and get this thing packed out and this is the way we're gonna have to do it and this was not what was going through my mind at that moment <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah so i was just like yeah golden scenario and um, they liked those little tiny cow calls and they were kind of marching in and then, um, you know, it's like knock an arrow. Like, yeah. So an you, arrow. you yeah. were behind, I was closest to where they're at. And so I'm thinking, oh, I'm, I'm stuck. I thought you, since you were behind me and you were, you were lower, I felt like, or did you I was a down? little bit lower, but I, you know, my head was sticking up above that rock. Yeah. So yeah. I thought like you might be able to move and I didn't think I could, but when I realized that this bull, the front bull, I hadn't seen the other two yet. I just saw the front bull. Um, and at first, like I said, I thought, oh, he's going to see me. But then he didn't. He just start, kept walking and put his head down. So I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to have an opportunity. So he, he started walking, put his walked behind a tree. And at that point, I dropped down to my knees behind this rock. And then he went behind another tree. And I pulled an arrow out, knocked it, and got set. Walked by another tree. And now I'm like, okay, he's getting like close to that, that range. So I got my range finder out. And there was one, there was a bunch of dead trees and then there was a cluster of dead trees. But just after that cluster of dead trees, there was a nice wide opening and I ranged a big boulder right there that was 60 yards. And that was a shot I could take it. And I feel comfortable taking it an elk. And he was going behind all these trees. You know, he's probably 80, then he was at 70. And I'm like, okay, he's going to go right into this opening, right at my range. And so he gets behind that cluster of trees, walking on a just steady walk. I'm like, holy crap this is happening in my head i'm like at first it was like couldn't believe it and then i'm like oh wow i might have an opportunity and then he got behind the cluster i'm like oh wow this is this i'm about to shoot out yeah and i kind of peeked over you know again like i didn't want to be moving because i was exposed and i couldn't really see what everybody was seeing but i had kind of peeked and i saw you like like there was just like a little bit of tension on the string yep. like okay like here like this is gonna happen and uh Again, I was like, "Oh, thank God!" <laughs> yeah, literally, I had I had the bow up. I had I was clipped on, and I was like starting the beginning of the draw process. And then he froze, and I, or he never showed up on the other side, so I couldn't see him anymore. But I knew he should be like any second now, because the cluster wasn't so big that, you know, it was like an elk body width probably. Yeah. And but he was he was stuck in that cluster, and I just need him to pop out, you know, handful more yards, and I'm like, uh and then which I kept... which that bull would have done under any circumstances other than what we experienced right so like, you see what happened like there. even if even if he was like oh there's no elk here i don't like it that's the way it was gonna go yeah and if he was like oh i saw something weird i don't like it 
that's the opening you would have gone through. And however, what we experienced was, you know, I'm craned around, I'm looking directly at these three bulls, and all of a sudden, so like my left ear hole is towards the bulls, and my right ear hole just gets full of wind. And I was just like, oh, man. That wind shifted right on us. Yeah, and it was just like. Second, literally just seconds before I would have had a shot. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, this isn't ideal. And so I kind of hit the cow call a couple more times. and, And they all three, like, again, like the age, they were at a very impressionable age, these bulls. And they were trying their best to ignore the wind from <laughs> they, what i saw they so badly wanted <laughs> to keep coming i couldn't yes. see them at all i could not a single one of them could i see at this point so i was just stuck waiting for him to pop out but you you were seeing that they were just kind of looking in our direction but yeah and they just knew it was like oh boy something stinks over there and that's not good and, uh-huh. and um and then yeah they yeah kind of peeled uh in the wrong direction and then you know it again i was like man so so close and and you could just in my mind and my experience said i was like these this would have happened this would have happened and even watching how those bulls walked away like they wanted so badly to come check that out yeah, they didn't but their freak noses out too bad. just couldn't let them they kind of did like a slow turn and jog away and then did they stop? Yeah, stop and then they started walking again, and yeah, and they kind of paralleled us a little bit, and and yeah, I mean that was that was pretty much it. So <laughs> those were our elk of the trip. Those were our elk of the trip. Yeah. We kept hiking. We kept bugling. We kept glassing. And I did. I felt very good about how we covered the rest of that ground. Um. I mean, we really hunted it. We didn't just, like, march through there. I don't feel like there was a bunch of elk hiding underneath rocks, you know. There could have been. In my mind, like, there were maybe some, like, cow-calf pairs in there that were hiding from everybody else. Uh-huh. Like, mom wasn't ready to kick her calf out and be bred, so she's staying out of the fray. Like, that's about what was probably in there. Hmm. Well, like we said, I mean, we gave her hell. Yes. Gave it a good college effort. Yes, we we did. We did. Um, so, yeah, and then speaking of college efforts, we, um, uh, upon our hike out, it was late in the day, and uh, we had a couple of beers. We got to bed relatively early after we transitioned to a new spot, and it felt uh, very much like when I was, because I haven't hunted these areas in a long time, and I'm, I am happy to know that there's still elk in here. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely taking me back to the college days. <laughs> like, These are the old stomping grounds, huh? Yeah, old stomping grounds. And then, um, yeah, the the spot that kind of our last-ditch effort spot for this morning, because we both got to go back to the, to the jobs, um, still has elk in it. And... We, uh, <laughs> yeah, the only bugle of the entire trip <laughs> is, like, pull up to the spot at 
you know, basically, 950. Yeah, basically drove to the top of a mountain yep. through these, all these forest roads. And a couple times I'm like, where is he taking me? Like, is this where he kills me now? <laughs> <laughs> and also, also, uh, yeah, I'm driving. I guess I'm just not as confident with my rig as you are with yours because you're driving down these roads just way faster than me. So you're way ahead of me. I can't see you anymore. I'm like, okay, if I blow a tire or if I if I take the wrong turn, I'll never find him. <laughs> and so at one point there's a fork in the in the road and I stop and I'm like, well, the main, it seems like the road to the right is more established, but that left one certainly could be a road. He'd go down. I sat there. I'm like, man, it's the middle of the night. There's no cell phone service. <laughs> what? I'm not going to get turned. Like you can't turn around a lot of these roads. It's so narrow. No. I'm like this is a nightmare, <laughs> but I finally did pick the right spot and I found you. It yeah. was so funny, man. I was because I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, you've really matured. You used to drive these roads so much faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, that shows you how uh, that is lame hilarious. of a driver I am. Well, this morning when we were driving out in the snow, though, again I'm like, oh, Ryan's got to think I'm like the old grandma driver of the world. But I, I, I haven't driven with these new tires on my truck in snow yet. And then we're going down these muddy dirt roads. I'm like, man, Greasy. the last thing I want is like to yeah. start spinning and go off one of these yes. big banks. Absolutely. So I was creeping in low gear going down those hills today. As well, you should. Yeah, no, that was, gosh, man, yeah. It, so this morning was super, super cold. Um, we heard a bugle. In the middle of the night, yeah, as we were a shock, like, a shock bugle. Yes, we shock, shock, shock bugled some elk with our truck doors, canopy doors, as we were going to bed, um, and um, and yeah, it was just colder than cold this morning. And I thought we were gonna get up and just, I thought they were gonna be lighting it up. Yeah, and it was this cold weather. We heard the bugle last night. I thought we were gonna start hiking, and you were gonna rip off a locator then. Oh, yep. finally. Okay, here we go. Game plan. Uh-huh. Made it easy. But, yeah, I mean, it was cold enough to where, like, the ground the ground had, like, no squish to it, right? It was, mm-hmm. like, awkward, uneven cement walking. Um, and just kind of do a, a little loop, and it was gorgeous. And then the snow started f- just, like, it was, like, it more so, like, wanted to rain. Mm-hmm. But it was just, like. At any given time, you could see, like, a dozen snowflakes, maybe. Um, And then... You pointed out the snow to me at that point, and then that's when I I go to you. I'm like, man, I've got a Christmas carol stuck in my head. (laughs) (laughs) That that immediately got chestnuts roasting over an open fire playing in my head when I saw the first snow of the year. (laughs) I mean, it was cold. I mean, I was was wearing... We were both wearing a lot of clothes, um, and I was surprised. and, And, you know, I made that... I'm like, yeah, the body... You know, just it's been so warm, and then to be have this type of cold, you know, your body needs to acclimatize. And I'm basically wearing, you know, what I'd be wearing if it were, you know, 10 degrees. Right. Probably more than what I would be wearing if it were 10 degrees, and and I was actually doing some. some But you think that maybe it was in the teens. Oh, yeah, man. So I don't cold. feel quite so bad then for <laughs> piling on the puffy stuff. Oh, dude, it was cold. Yeah. Um, and then, so we get into this meadow, finally, and it's just more of the same, no talking. Uh, get into this meadow, and it's like, okay, well, there is brand new, fresh tracks, um, uh, you know, a big, noticeable bull track, um, a cup, you know, a cow and a calf and a cow, um, 
and they kind of peeled through this gap and then we went through a different gap trying to keep the wind right and I'm like yeah we're just going to follow tracks and then we ended up on what to me was like a very noticeable like raghorn bull track and more so because it was separated from the group like he's in proximity to the group but he's not a part of the group and I'm like okay this is young bull could have been a spike for all we know. And you know. and you said to me like this is a great scenario, right? Yes. So why why did you think that's the scenario we had was was so good? Because those those young bulls, um, you know, like especially like laid out there in the tracks. I was like, oh, this guy's he wants to be a part of the group, but he's not a part of the group. If we become a welcoming group, he's going to march right in. Yeah. Um, and so then I was not bugling at all just like really soft cow calls as we kind of like slipped through that timber and continued tracking these elk and and then like we get to this spot where i was like yeah they got to be bedded up here or why did you why did you you think that what was about it the habitat it's just something about like a lot of times like you have like a nice contouring ridge and it's you know it's relatively mellow and then there'll be a face that's much steeper and heavily timbered and to me that's like a, an elk bedding area they like the steeper stuff yep yeah. yeah i mean not all the time but i'm like yes if i had to like draw this up i'd be yeah. like yeah that's where they're gonna be yeah you basically pointed there's like this knob up ahead of us this timbered knob yeah. that as you just said this mellow ridge we were on all of a sudden went steeper up that and you're like they're better right there and yeah so we started making our move so we started making our move and then it was just kind of like almost like a repeat right it's like you get on top of the the ridge the snow like really starts falling and it's kind of swirling around us in every direction and there go all of our tracks um and uh, i guess i should say like in that kind of like hardened cement ground those elk elk toes were punching through that stuff and leaving like very nice noticeable tracks yeah um and man it's an odd thing montana idaho i've had it happen a hundred percent of the time like where like a real snow day it just shuts everything down and uh so we you know i I switched over to bugles to try to like okay maybe we're close enough and might fire something up last ditch effort kind of last ditch effort and, um and nothing and we kind of you know hit our tails and slunk off for the track so so we never really talked about it but why didn't we go push into that bedding area did you were you think was it the snow you're like you know what i, I was thinking maybe you, in your head you were thinking this is getting like serious snow maybe we should get off the mountain before it gets worse was that what was going in your mind or did you just think ah we're not gonna be able to make this happen it was kind of a combination of like okay how how much do we want to push this and um yeah like the amount of snow that accumulated just in that brief window of it picking up like yeah, that was a pretty darn treacherous drive off that mountain so we probably made the good call. Yeah. Who knows? Well, we we would just told. I think you were telling me the story, um, right? Were you telling me a story like, like an hour or two before about how you and a friend got yeah. caught in like this snowstorm deal like that, right? Yeah. 
where it came out of nowhere and now we're i'm like oh wow now that's happening to us <laughs> yes yeah, <laughs> like yeah how fast could we get six inches pile up here i don't know yeah we had this like yeah this spot that we had both hunted a bunch and knew the area really well and this inversion happened and it was like this super wet snow that just like soaked through everything plus it was like super warm and you were dressed for super cold and there was just like no finding that happy medium and it was a complete complete whiteout like you know 10 yards of visibility type of scenario and it took us a long long time to find our way off this place that we i mean you really really knew but uh, it was almost like a full vertigo situation. Well, it's amazing how different things look when it's all white, and then, then if yeah. you can't see ahead of you at all, and that wall of precipitation, that's it's a whole new world. Yes. So definitely, I mean, when you're out here in these areas and weather comes in, it it's just it's not like a snowstorm blowing in when I'm in Michigan and I've got quarter mile to the truck. You, know, you, you got to think a little bit more, like, is this something that you're prepared for? Is this something that you're going to be able to get out of? Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's something that has to run through your head a couple oh, yeah. times a year when you get th- something like that coming through. Oh, yeah, all, all the time, all the time. Um, and that was our hunt. It didn't yeah. come together, but uh, I do feel like we gave it a heck of an effort, so I don't feel bad about that at all. Yeah, for having a weekend? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, growing up here, I've had way worse way worse elk hunts, yeah. you know. Would you have done anything differently if you, like, looked back, is there anything we could have done to or any mistakes we could have avoided other than, I guess, not being ready for those three that came in? I, I think, honestly, the smart move would have probably been after that first night um, on our kind of multi-day spot. Probably would have been like, okay, we just need to cut our losses and bail. Um, the problem is, is I would be sitting here right now being like, man, if we would have gone over that other ridge. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and just been, like, more cognizant of the time, right? Be like, okay, only have a weekend. Let's just, like, turn and burn a, a, yeah. as many spots as we can. Yep. Um, and just, just get that active bull. I, I feel like there's some guy, and we were, we were talking about, um, you know, just the different styles and stuff. There are some people that that's all they do, right? They just drive yep. from spot to spot, bugle, spot to spot, bugle. And I guess it can work for you. Yep. Yeah, but, I mean, the reality is, is, like, we basically did that last night, and we had a bull bugle at us right off the road, and we're like, okay, well. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, that's that's our plan for the morning. Perfect. So, um, yeah, man, I don't know. Um, it, yeah, it's just you got you to gotta have, like, that Rolodex of spots. And be able to go through them and, and definitely burn some shoe leather. And, um, you know, I think anybody that knows me knows I'm not, like, the best at maximizing my time. Uh, <laughs> and so that's something i got to get get better on in the elk woods, too. So It's funny, though. A lot of the stuff that you've talked about here as far as the elk hunting, public land elk hunting, it's very similar to public land whitetail hunting in that, you, you need to have a whole lot of different spots you can go check because you can't just depend on one spot because if, there's so many different variables that can change on public land. One spot might be hot right now. It might be horrible in two weeks. So having a lot of different options, a lot of different you know scenarios play out. If a bunch of people show up, you've got something else to fall back on. Same thing with 
the aggressive tactics that you talked about, how it might pay off on public land to go into a betting area. Because if you don't, someone might do it tomorrow. Um, they might be betting some completely different area. But if you know they're there right now, you got to go with that. And a lot of the guys that I talk and, to. And a lot of that, that betting scenario is, is certainly like a, if you've uh, taken note of some pressure, right? Yeah. So it's like no trucks at the trailhead, pretty darn confident. I can leave these guys till tomorrow. Yeah, that that's typically typically a good good bet is to let them have that betting spot and yeah. catch them on the outside if if you know you got a couple of days. But yeah, the flip side is definitely like there are people all over. I know these elk are, are bedded right here, um, and this is definitely like I'm up here, so that stands to reason somebody else is gonna walk up. Right, right, know. and I feel like that's the same thing. A lot of people that are finding success on public land whitetails especially you know back in the midwest or different more heavily pressured areas that's becoming like the most consistent way to get a mature buck in those spots you can't hang around the edges you can't wait for them to come to you you have to go for those high risk high reward type tactics get into that bedding area and like you said it's high consequence yep you might ruin it but that might be your only chance to actually get a shot too and like you're saying if that's your only spot it's like well you better have a whole lot more spots yeah (laughs) you better you know be prepared for that so I had a really good time, though. I, I appreciate you showing me around and, and taking me out to some of your spots, and we had a good time. Didn't didn't get an elk, but... Good, man. Good, yeah. You know you know how it is when I you take somebody out. You're always like, I hope they see that there is a point in this. Oh, yeah. Even though it doesn't seem like it. Oh, yeah. Like, I am encouraging myself right now that yep. there's a point to this, but... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I know that's that's how hunting goes a lot. Yes. So you just got to put in, I, I always, I I don't feel too bad about a hunt that doesn't end up with meat in the freezer as long as I feel like I didn't like take any shortcuts or I didn't do something. Like I, as long as I don't feel like I pulled out without giving it everything I had, I'm okay. But that's a horrible feeling if you ever, you know, leave early or you're like, well, I, I knew I should have gone up that ridge, but it was so steep. I didn't want to do it. Um, I always want to make sure I never have that feeling. So I don't think like we had that. I no. feel like we, we did it, do our best of our efforts. So. Good. That's all I can ask for. Good. Good. Thank you for saying that. those nice things, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> all right, before moving on, let's take a quick break to thank our friends at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Jeff Propes, a land specialist out of Missouri. And Jeff is going to be telling us about shopping for properties away from home. Well, interestingly enough, um, I just became one of those buyers. I uh, I live in northeast Missouri, but I just uh, my wife and I just bought a farm in, in uh, southeast Kansas. So you, you know, it, it opened my eyes to what my buyers come you know go through when they come into my area to buy a property when they're when they're not from here. The biggest thing is is get to know the neighbors, find out what's going on with the you know most of the properties we sell are for deer hunters, and uh, if it's a deer hunting property, try to find out you know how the management's going on in the area for. You know, upper age class deer, if that's what you're after, try to find out if there's any issues with any of the neighbors around the property that you're looking at or the area that you're looking at. And, uh, you know, get to know get to know the neighbors because they, they live there. They know everybody. They can refer you to people. You might need help uh, getting stuff done on the property. So I think first and foremost is to find out the general scope of the neighborhood and get to know the neighbors. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Jeff currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash probes that's p-r-o-p-s-t 
<laughs> While I got you though, Ryan, I want to talk about another issue on the public land front, not just Chase and Elk in it, but um, here this is coming out. Well, I don't know. Today is the twenty fourth, maybe of September. I think is what my watch tells me. And this podcast will be coming out on like the twenty seventh or twenty sixth of September. Land and Water Conservation Fund. There's some big stuff happening here this week. Can you talk to us about what what's going on? What do we need to know on that front? Yeah. So, uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound like um, something that you use every day, but um, I, I mean, so many communities benefit from this, big and small. It's it's a uh, basically a, a tax on offshore oil gas leases um, um, that goes into a fund, which is the fund part of LWCF, and it it goes to uh, lots of access um, and lots of basically, like think of like outdoor, like things that you can get people outdoors on easily, like um, bike paths, city parks um uh if you like walk from uh the city up into um an area that everybody goes and walks their dog that but it's private all around there that's probably an lwcf easement Hmm. the lwcf uh, typically does matching funds um and they work with private landowners or the fund can be used in private land situations that provide easements through private land. Um, you know, full-blown access, um, like new boat ramps on rivers and lakes. Um, again, parking areas, picnic tables, um, bike paths. Um, chances are everybody you know benefits from LWCF if they do anything semi-active outside including if that activity is just going down to the park yeah um so um the land water conservation fund um has been is something that needs to be reauthorized and you know we've been fighting advocating rather for a long time to get this thing permanently authorized um a vote uh just went through the, I believe, the 12th of September to permanently reauthorize Land Water Conservation Fund, which sounds fantastic. However... This was a committee vote, right? The Natural Resources Committee? And However, what we need is funding in the fund, and they have not authorized how much funding uh, it will receive. Um, We would like, you know permanent reauthorization and fully funding it hasn't full been funding. fully funded like almost ever for a very long period right correct yes yeah and we're talking about a big chunk of money um and again uh you can um you know you can utilize those funds to either match funds that you already have um which is the most common um or um sometimes you can get um a, you know, a full grant basically from LWCF to on a, on a particular project. 
if it shows value. So, and it's something I was just reading in Bugle magazine on the way out here. I think it was, I think it was in Wisconsin, maybe where they found that where they've got their elk herd. Maybe Minnesota. I can't remember which, but there was a scenario where, you know, there's this large chunk of state land, state forest or national forest up there where their herd is, and a piece of private land right in the center of it, kind of some core habitat, was going up for sale, and if it were sold to private landowners, it was likely going to be subdivided into houses and stuff like that, kind of right in the core of this great habitat, great hunting opportunity. And so instead of that being sold off to someone to be developed, um, the state was able to, I think this is right, I think between RMEF and the state, they were able to pool funds and then get LWCF monies to help acquire that land and then give it back to the state to become public land open to hunting, wildlife, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was a cool example of how they're using that. I mean, a direct benefit to hunters right there. Yeah, great. Um, I mean, great example. And, and you know, when these deals go down, it's not like they're doing it on the cheap. You know, it's market value. It's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. But obviously it's, you know, that scenario is a, a perfect one because – it's it is market value and the market is uh gonna favor um you know subdivisions a lot more than it's gonna favor open land that uh elk get to live on yeah and i feel like not very it'd be very unlikely that a state or dnr or whatever could pull off something like that without the help of these programs right and organizations like rocky mountain elk foundation and others that can help coordinate these things and bring people together on that front but you know they need this lwcf to, to be able to finance that kind of stuff to be able to protect these final places and these special little spots i feel like it's been used a lot to help open access to landlocked public land too right yes that's yep. something i've read a lot about so it's something so, that uh catch Idaho where i live like every subdivision um, has basically an LWCF funded easement through yes, through the private property into the public land. Yeah. Yep. So this vote, or, or I guess basically, what do, what do we need to do, or what can we do to make sure not only it gets permanently reauthorized but also funded? And what's the timeline? Of it that? is absolutely critical. As fast as as your fingers can fly, you know. Um, you don't really just call your elected officials and say, hey, I benefit greatly from this. I want uh, I want you to vote or advocate or take a leadership position that's, that to fully fund land water conservation fund. Um, something that you need to realize is this is not, you're not going to see anything tax-based regards to this. This is something that is that has nothing to do tax-wise with you locally. Um, this is literally when these, uh, oil and gas leases are activated, there is a tax that puts this money aside. And basically what they need to vote on is to utilize those funds and how much of those funds. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just a Western state issue either. Not at all. So if you're in New York or Alabama, I mean, you should be calling your representatives just as much there as as if you lived in Montana. Yeah. I mean, if you have a dog in the big city, uh, chances are you're walking it into something that LWCF had a part of. Same with your kids. Um, it, yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's critical. 
Um, I guess we could talk about like the negative side of things is, you know, the detractors from this say, well, the funds aren't being used efficiently. Um, that's something uh, Rep. Rob Bishop uh, would, would always hang his hat on. And the fact of the matter is, is, um, you know, there's, there's definitely some cases there and everybody, you know, probably could do a heck of a lot better job of spending their funds efficiently. Um, but you know, in this day and age, we're likely not going to see some bipartisan, you know, unanimous vote to tax anybody and have those funds be used for wildlife again. Right. So for habitat and wildlife and access again. This was one of those, uh, another byproduct of the of the '60s, where we got so many different programs like this in place, right? I'm pretty sure that's when the LWCF was put in place. Was some point in the '60s, or early '70s, early yeah, 70s, somewhere yeah. around there. That uh, that to your point, that was this kind of odd time where there's bipartisan support for so many things related to conservation and the environment. I mean, incredible landmark regulations and laws were put in place during that time period that we benefit from now, but there's no way they could happen now, like. Odds are no. Yeah, I, I don't want to say no way. Like, I, I still got some, some faith out there. A little hope. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, to be completely honest, um, you know, when I was in, in D.C., uh, the middle of the month, you know, part of the spiel is, is definitely, like, listen, if you aren't going to vote on behalf of, you know, public lands, access, um you know, I'm going to vote for somebody who will. Yeah. And and that's our job as voters is, you know, this is not as much as we want to think that somebody else is just going to go out there and do the job for us. The, the whole system, this whole crazy democracy system that we have here in the U.S. is based around active participation. And so you actively get up and vote. You actively keep tabs on your elected officials. You put them in office. They're supposed to represent you and your interests. You need to let them know what your interests are and how you want to be represented. Yeah. And that's the way the system works. And you got to be the, the squeaky wheel on a lot of this. And I feel like for so many people today, we identify as hunters or anglers as like, that's how we identify. It's not for a lot of us. It's not just like some little hobby we do one week a year or weekend a year. Like that is like our, who we are. And if that is who you are, then what allows us to be that person to live that life is, are these places, the wildlife, these wild places. I mean, it, it, there's not many other people that are going to speak up for them. You know, as, no. as Theodore Roosevelt said, uh, you know, these animals and places can't speak for themselves. So we have to. Yes. And, um, Yes, and we have a uh, a giant track hoe uh, driving driving into uh, check us out. I here. wonder what that was. Yeah, fortunately they move at like one mile an hour. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it. It is, man. I mean, it's a lot of folks are like, oh, well, I don't like being political. This isn't political. This is just the system that we're in. And you got to participate and stand up for what you believe in because nobody else will. And it's, you know, everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. And they're going to take the path of least resistance is the unfortunate thing that I've learned. So you got to get in there and you got to 
say, this is, you know, this is what I do. These are the programs that support it. You need to support those programs and don't let them off the hook. So on this front, what's happening? Why is September 30th an important date for us to make these phone calls before? So I've been seeing that, that date thrown around. Yes. September 30th is supposed to be like when like house appropriations committee, um, is supposed to have all their ducks in a row for, um, uh, basically going forward with, with the budget for this year. Okay. So if you hear this in real time on the 27th or 28th or 29th or 30th of September, 2018, Give your representatives a call. Let them know that you care about LWCF, that it's benefiting you and other hunters and anglers and outdoor recreators. And that's something that's a very quick, I mean, it doesn't take very long. Place a quick phone call. Lots of times you'll leave a voicemail or talk to a secretary or something. But that stuff, it takes five minutes of your time, and it, it adds up and makes a difference, doesn't it? Oh, it adds up and makes a huge difference. And, and the man, it is so, so easy and it is not like I'm not somebody who likes conflict at all, and this is not conflict at all. Their job, when they pick up the phone, is to listen to you. They ask you where you're from, so they can make sure that you you know you're in their district or not. Um, and and that's basically it. Yeah. Say hey, I want to you know I need need to let my congressman know or my state senator know that this is extremely important to me. Um, you know, it absolutely helps if you're part of the tax base. And, and you know, if you have that story about, like, listen, boy, I just, you know, moved to this place with my three kids, and this is a huge part of why I moved here. Um, that's, that's a very important thing. That's a big economic impact. Um, and, you know, as we see a lot of folks come into these Western states, you know, it's like the time to get this infrastructure in place is yesterday. Like the more we can do right on the front end, the better it's going to be for generations and generations to come. Um, and the tool is sitting there and we got to figure out why the heck these folks aren't using it and, and make sure they pick it up again and start getting these easements in place and, and, and get that funding, you know, ideally fully funded permanently. I hope it happens. I was glad to see that the vote uh, went well earlier this month through the committee, but uh, to your point, we still have work to do. So if we can get, you know, we've got tens of thousands of people who could pick up the phone. And if we all did that, that would make a real big noise in D.C. and across the state capitals, across the country, if all sorts of hunters and anglers started saying, hey, this matters. This is something we care about. So we do have a lot of power. I think we've shown that in some of these past things over the last year or two, that when we stand up and make some noise around issues like this, politicians take notice, and uh, we need to, you know, wield our wield that big stick sometimes. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, your, your uh, buddies over there at Onyx and – uh, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, you know, they just released, um, you know, something that we've all known about, but they did a great report in, 
you know, laid out in a way that anybody can follow about how much land that we're currently paying for that we have no access to, landlocked, public land, um, all across the U.S. And LWCF is one of the tools that you can use to unlock those gates. Yeah. I, literally, when I was in on my Montana whitetail hunt a few weeks ago, I was dealing with that. I wanted to be, there's public land, great looking public land that I couldn't access because there's private land in between me and the road and I had to go get permission to get to those spots and some of the people wouldn't give me that permission. It's kind of frustrating. Like, this is public land, that's land I own um, that essentially becomes private land because of that. Yep. Um, so this is, like you said, LWCF, LWCF is a great tool to, to fix that. Yeah, and if, if you're one of those folks, it's like, Oh, the feds have too much ground already. Well, call and advocate for LWCF because we should at least be able to access the ground that we already have. Right. Um, you know, and the reality is, is we need more. We need more access. We need we need more more ground out here. And you know, the population's growing, and and we like our wild and free places, and that's. You know how America was founded to get kind of cheesy, but um, I, I don't fence me in, man. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. Every time I get to take some time away from the office and get out, whether it be driving around the back roads in northern Michigan or out here in Montana, and it is just such an incredible feeling to know that you can step out of the truck door and walk for miles, and that's that's land open to to every one of us, and you can hunt it, you can forage for mushrooms you can fish you can hike you can just sit down and have a picnic to still have places where you can get away from the hustle and the bustle and the noise and the smog and the traffic i mean i don't know in today's world i don't know how you could live without places like that oh absolutely escape from it all i know like one of the roads just up behind us um was not a good elk hunting spot but it always get like nice afternoon sun and when the wind was blowing in these uh, lodgepole pine, you know, I couldn't hear a bugle to save my life. And, you know, I'd pull in there and just lay in the sun with my dogs and read a book. And if that's all the value it has to you, pick up the damn phone. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, is there any other final plugs you want to make? Any projects or any uh, anything that you want to make sure is out there in the world that we need to pay attention to other than what's happening with LWCF? Um, you know, you know, really we have, um, I, I, I want to see more active participation in, in these advocacy fights that we need to be a part of as, you know, people who enjoy the outdoors period. So, um, you know, I think, uh, we got midterm elections coming up. Um, I'd love to see just a higher voter turnout period. Um, because man, it's dismal. And when you travel to other countries and you, uh, tell them how few people vote in America, they look at us like we're the stupidest people on the planet. Um, so I'd, I'd love to see those numbers start cranking up and I'd love to see folks, you know, vote, vote on behalf of public lands, man. Yeah. Hunting, fishing, public lands, wildlife, wild places. That's one of our greatest tools is that vote. Yep, and so we're seeing uh, we're seeing the public lands uh, get thrown around as starting to get tossed back and forth as this political football. And, 
we know the politicians are paying attention to it, um, but they also need to know that there's some consequences there too. So, All right. Well, good stuff, Ryan. I appreciate the work that you're doing, you know, spreading the word about these things and working on a lot of different programs, going to D.C., talking to people about this. Um, as a hunter and angler myself, I'm glad there's people like you leading the charge. So thank you for that, and thanks for leading the Flatlander around the mountains for a few days. Oh, man, great attitude. Thank you very much. No, it was a pleasure being in the woods with you. Um, and like I said, coming off the mountain today, even then, though it didn't see like, seem like it, I think we'll have that uh, you know, successful, very heavy pack out here in the near future. So We'll make it happen eventually. Yes, sir. And that is it today, and we didn't get to talk about it on this episode, but when you hear from me next, it will be whitetail season here in Michigan and across most the rest of the country, so man, best time of year, very exciting things to come, lots of stories, hopefully an update on Holyfield, and all those things I will be sharing, not just here on the podcast, but also on the Wired Hunt Instagram account, also on the Wired Hunt YouTube channel, so make sure you're checking out all of those things. We'll be keeping you posted. Thank you for following along. Good luck out in the woods. Until next time, stay wired to hunt.